This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Hey everyone, welcome to Retail Retold. This week, we have Val Richardson on the show. Val is the Vice President of Real Estate at the Container Store, and she brings a ton of insights to the show. But before we head into the show, I wanted to bring up a topic that I've been reading a lot about lately. That topic is working on your weaknesses. We all have weaknesses, and most of us are trying to constantly improve on those weaknesses. Nothing wrong with that, but I believe now is a good time to go in the other direction. We've been stress tested. The last four months were extraordinarily challenging and trying for most people. Doing some reflection and seeing what projects, tasks, or skills really shined through as strengths for you would be good practice right now. Because if there were things that you were really strong at during the last four months, that means you're probably pretty good at those. And it's probably time to focus on that and push the pedal to the metal. That's what I got for everyone today. I hope you enjoy the show. It was a true honor to interview Val, and I think you're going to love it. Thanks. Today, I'm honored to say we have Val Richardson. Val has been in the business for 40 years. For the last 20 years, she's been the vice president of real estate for the Container Store. She worked at numerous retailers before that. And in 2019, she became the first retailer to chair the ICSE. I'm really excited for this show. Welcome to the show, Val. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you take a moment, tell us about you, what you're up to, and the container store. Be happy to. I, um, you know, there, there's that old adage that the real estate business, you either grew into it or fell into it, right? I know you have a boss, a good friend of mine, Adam, who uh, kind of grew into the business. Uh, I absolutely fell into it. So uh, my intent as a, as a young person coming out of college was to be a special education teacher. And while uh, I look back now and think that maybe there was some attributes of that training that uh, played quite well in the real estate business, uh, my first job actually was with a development company. I was a secretary, they called it back then, uh, you know, making the coffee and watering the plants. And, and I worked with a shopping center property manager for this, for a larger company. And um, over time, um, the uh, the company was expanding quite rapidly. This was in the early 80s. 
and uh, I had the opportunity to move over into uh, the leasing side of the shopping center division. And uh, quite frankly, um, one of kind of the uh, reoccurring themes of my life, uh, I had uh, several mentors and advocates that really allowed me to pursue a role that I felt like, you know, I was capable of, but that nobody had really done before in that particular company. Um, the company was Trammell Crow Company. Uh, they're still around today, but not in the development capacity that they were in the 80s. Um, but through them, I got the experience of leasing transactions, um, property development, uh, really the, the full spectrum of, uh, of shopping center um, kind of from a pure, you know, here's a piece of dirt standpoint all the way through uh, the building, the lease up and the, uh, the ongoing management. And it was a, a great opportunity to learn really at the feet of some of our legendary commercial real estate developers at the time. In the uh, mid 80s, as you know, we had a significant change in public policy relative to uh, commercial real estate ownership, and that kind of changed the, the focus of, of, the, of the company, um, moved much more into an asset management company rather than a development company. And one thing that I learned about myself is that I very much liked to create business. I, I like the opportunity of coming into a community and um, bringing a tenant or pull, pull, bringing a shopping center together that maybe had never been there before or had never been there in that capacity and add value to the, the community and to the, the tenants and to the customers. So uh, I was fortunate um, to have the right relationships and uh, have a, uh, an opportunity to go to work for uh, Barnes & Noble Booksellers at the very, very beginning of uh, the superstore uh, development period. Uh, so uh, Lynn Reggio had purchased the Barnes & Noble name there in New York out of uh, bankruptcy. Uh, he had a vision that uh, the stores that he owned, B. Dalton Booksellers and Doubleday and Scribner that were in the malls, uh, could add more uh, in social context and wanted to have a large format um, bookstore that uh, could be developed out throughout the country. So uh, so my first year with Barnes & Noble was, gosh, is it a bookstore? Gosh, is it a bookstore plus a music store? Is it a bookstore plus a music store plus a software store plus a cafe? Um, it was a very quick moving train, um, but you know we built gosh, 300, 350 stores when, uh, while I was there, I was there uh, a little more than four years. And, um, and it was, it was an incredible time of listening to a creative merchant, uh, try to, um, evolve a concept to meet what the community needs were. And I think at that time, at that place, um, there was nobody better in doing what Lenny was able to do. Um, during that period, I'd actually moved to New York. And uh, ran into Sally Frame Cassocks, who at that time was the chairman of Ann Taylor. And um, after some some time, um, it seemed that it was appropriate for me to move uh, to to Ann Taylor to help them uh, stabilize their their uh, fleet and then uh, help uh, grow the Ann Taylor brand. And you know, it was one of those times where I felt like you know I'd done uh, opener shopping centers, I'd done big box retail. Uh, it seemed like specialty retail that was primarily mall and lifestyle based would would be a good addition to uh, to my uh, kind of toolkit uh, of representing retail and real estate. So uh, I had the opportunity there to um, not only uh, represent Ann Taylor, but also be uh, a lead on the team that um, took Sally's vision of 
a um, of a division that uh, appealed to a, a young woman that maybe wasn't quite uh, ready for Ann Taylor go to work wear, but very much had the same um, sense of fashion and style, just didn't have the same pocketbook. And uh, so we created Ann Taylor Loft. And uh, by the time I left in um, 2000, Ann Taylor Loft was actually a larger division than the mothership Ann Taylor. Um, and I know that, you know, they've gone on to um, to other ownerships and things today, but it, it, it was still um, quite an exciting industry to, to be a part of. Um, specialty apparel retail, you know, during the 90s was, uh, was kind of the bee's knees. And 2000, we decided that we needed, uh, it was time to come back to Texas. You know, we are Texans, born and bred here. So uh, there is no doubt that at some time we would come back and that seemed to be the right time. So um, in doing so, uh, I was able to reconnect with uh, people that I'd known before that owned the container store. Uh, it was still owner operated at that time. Um, when I joined in 20 and 2000, uh, they had 22 stores. And um, so I had the opportunity then to, to build a real estate team and really help the container store get uh, to the point of, uh, you know, just, just a little shy of a billion dollars today, where it's, it's a real, uh, that's a real milestone for me. I've had been with three companies that had the opportunity to reach a billion dollars in sales. So we're not going to let a little thing like a pandemic uh, stop us from that. So here I am. That's my retail career. Wow, Val. That is an extraordinary story. Truly fascinating. I love the cute line at the end there. And that kind of leads me into the, the, the next question, which is what's going on in retail today? What are you seeing and what is your crystal ball saying? <laughs> it's a little, uh, a little foggy right now, kind of like the one in uh, Hogwarts that doesn't quite come clear until the right moment in the movie. Um, you know, I, I, I think what's interesting to me about this uh, current crisis that we're, we're in is that it, it has some similarities, but it's also very different from the different from the downturns that we've had in commercial real estate and retail over the last 40 years. You know, we've gone through. Um, SNL crises and dot com busts, and you know the rise of big box retail killing the malls. And we've done, you know, we've gone through several aspects of uh, of shifts and changes in retail real estate. And in in most cases, it was it was focused or or, or limited to a segment of our business, whether it had to do with ownership and uh, or how loans were structured or that you know we had a, a population decrease and so um, revenues for retail started to fall you know the, the each one you could kind of look at and say okay here's the real driving force for what's going on in the business right now and therefore you know if we look at other periods of time there where there are similar shifts in you know, demographics let's say you know okay we'll come out of this within you know x period of time well the, you know this pandemic is is um it affects everybody in the ecosystem. It, it's it's customers, it's businesses, it's uh, not only shopping and shopping centers, it's all commercial businesses, it's government, it's every aspect of our life is is impacted, and and our health is impacted, and so um, there there's there's so much uncertainty that is created by the the breadth and depth of this issue that I think the, the 
the cautiousness is very high and the anxiety is high in, in businesses because we can't really clearly say, oh gosh, let's point back to X and know that we'll be able to recover to pre-pandemic levels in 18 months or 24 months or, you know, I mean, when, when the Spanish flu happened in 1920, everything was different. So you can't really use that as a marker um, on how our business is going to um, rebound. Um, you know, most people I've talked to uh, in retail, um, unless, unless they're in a segment that's just been decimated, um, most people feel like this is about a two-year climb back out of the the hole that we're in from a revenue standpoint. Um, but but the reality is, most companies have done other things uh, to protect their liquidity, to uh, retain cash, to cut expenses. So it's possible. It's possible that as revenues come back a lot of the companies that uh, make it through will actually be stronger companies than they were, you know, from a balance sheet standpoint, um, stronger than they were before the pandemic. It just really depends on, on how quickly can we get back to some level of customer interaction where we can provide the services that the customer needs and wants. Wow. Really interesting insights and the two-year thing makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I hate how we got here, but I love the insights on are we going to see companies that are potentially stronger on the other side because of the extreme measures they had to take during the crisis? I guess when I think about this and I think about the other side one of the first things that comes to mind is what have you learned that you hope will help you when you get to the other side? Well, I've I've learned a whole lot more about supply chain management than I ever thought I would need. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I have so much respect for the people in our company that are dealing with issues other than, kind of physical plant and customer service um, related issues. You know, I'm pretty, pretty familiar with, um, you know, how to set up a new store, how to, how to get fixtures done, how to get product there, how to get, uh, you know, new staff trained. But when that all comes to a screeching halt, the, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a cartoon where, you know, the, tr- the train stops and then all the cars, you know, kind of pile up on it, you know, uh, because there, there, there's no place to go but forward. And, and supply chain is just like that. You know, think about, think about how many retailers, regardless of product that they sell, you know, are served with, um, by vendors that are not domestic. So whether they're from China or other parts of Asia or Europe, those supply chains have been equally disrupted as our own here in the U.S. Um, as a matter of fact, Asia was disrupted prior to the pandemic even started because of tariffs and retailers moving things out of China into other places in Asia. And then we went right into Chinese New Year, which everybody plans for. But we certainly didn't plan to come out of Chinese New Year with a pandemic. And so, so you have a whole lot of disruption of 
of you know brand new manufacturers maybe that are, are trying to create the appropriate molds and, and and equipment to to make the product that they've been asked to make but you know there's nobody to send it to because the u.s is uh retailers have cut all their orders, you know, for, for a period of time. And then you've got Europe, which tends to be the specialty vendors. They tend to be, you know, small market. I mean, at least for us, uh, we buy uh, things from vendors in, in Europe that can't sell to Target or Walmart or Amazon because they, they don't, they're, they're small batch provider, right? So they allow us to have some differentiation within our product mix. Well, quite frankly, some of those guys are still closed down four or five months later. They might not make it. So you've got a whole different, um, you know, sourcing activity that you need to do to be able to provide specialty products for those retailers that need it. And then in the U.S., you know, we have um, the unintended consequences, really, of the economic stimulus that has put a lot of our manufacturing employees at a point where they make more money on unemployment than they do working in their manufacturing plant. And so for us, some part of our staple of, of products is, you know, the big plastic storage boxes, you know, things that people put in their garage and put in their attic. And, you know, when they, when they get organized, particularly when they've been trapped at home and, and want to get some more order in their lives. Well, you know, some of our plants are on 25% productivity just because they don't have enough people to get back to come back to do the work. So there are all these different things, you know, that are going on um, outside of, ju of just the relationship that I have with Lambham. Um, and, and I would say an overarching um, piece of this entire experience, regardless of what function area my company is, is focused on it, but is that relationships matter. Being able to pick up the phone and call a person on the other side and talk through what their issues are, talk through what your issues are, and come up with a plan together that works for both partners to, uh, to really work together to make it through this period has been just the hallmark of our business. We've had vendors all over the world that have helped us. We have had landlords all over the country that have helped us. We have had employees all over the company that have helped us. And, and so it's, it's that, that those key relationships and being able to really think through, talk through, be transparent, uh, be communicative, and try to work through a period where everyone can come out on the other side and be whole. Wow. That is a lot to unpack. I love the supply chain takeaway because I don't think us in real estate think about that enough. And if you look at some of the most successful retailers in our industry, they're often supply chain ninjas. If you look at Walmart, Target, and other successful retailers, they are incredible at supply chain, among other things. But we just don't talk enough about that in the commercial real estate space. That's exactly right. But think about the, uh, and you're right, about the commodities uh, players, but, but think about uh, apparel. Think about specialty apparel and, and, and the impact on the department stores. You know, I would say probably 85, maybe 90% of their stuff comes from Asia. It's some, some, some country in Asia. Well, you know, talk about being all messed up. And, and so, you know, some of the things I think that you're, you're seeing, the pressures that we're seeing on the apparel segment in our business have, um, you know, just as much to do with their, their supply chain and being able to get product 
um, as it is, you know, being having stores closed and, th- you know, think about those guys that they have six weeks of selling time, right? When it's spring and you, you, you put your buy in six or eight months earlier and you pick, you know, the, the right color green and that's what you've got all over your store for your customers to come in to love to buy, right? All of a sudden now the customers didn't come in to buy. So they've lost the whole spring. It doesn't matter if they pick the right color green or not. They've lost spring and they don't know when to buy for because they don't know when the pandemic is going to release people to come back to stores. So they've lost summer. And if they don't take a risk and and buy fall, you know, then it's going to be until next spring before they can really have a a reliable revenue stream. So, So you have to think about the different segments of the business. And, and, you know, where they're getting their product from and how far out can they control that product flow so that they actually have what they need in the source for either their online business or their bricks and mortar business. Yeah, that's a great point. The seasonality for some retailers is making this environment extremely challenging. And one point that you bring up that I think is really interesting is when do these retailers buy for again? What season do they buy for? Because the end of the pandemic is uncertain. Hopefully we get some visibility soon and there is an end in sight. You know, the other thing that concerns me is the cost to reopen, in particular, the cost to reopen for small business in America. When you go from a cash depletion to reordering product because you have no product in the store to rehiring people. It's a real struggle for American small business. There's a huge cost to that and it's going to be problematic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had, I've had a number of conversations with landlords and with leasing teams, you know, just trying to explain the behind the curtain things that are going on. Uh, because if there's no visibility from the landlord's perspective on what it really takes to reopen a store, totally different than opening a store for the first time, totally different. And, and so, it, you know, you, you, you get a little documents to come across your desk that said, you know, as, as soon as the, as the government mandate is lifted, you know, you will open within five days. Well, what if I don't have any product and what if I don't have any people? And, it, you know, it doesn't do me any good to tick off a customer who's finally gotten brave enough to come out and, and walk into a store if I cannot serve her well. And so, you know, there, there's just a lot of understanding that has to happen on, um, on property owner and retailer sides to, to really have, create a good experience for our customers when they come back. Yeah, this is really tough stuff and the difficulties are not behind us. You know, Many people asked me pre-pandemic for a while now, what is the biggest risk to the industry? And I keep saying the biggest risk that the industry has is human capital. And I think it's an exigent issue. If the brightest and most dynamic and most talented constantly go to the tech industry or other industries, it is going to be a struggle. We need as an industry to start to do a better job at recruiting and bringing the most talented people into our industry because the challenges are fierce, but the rewards are great. 
And I believe over the long haul, if we can continue to fill the industry with the brightest and most talented, that plays out and wins over time. I truly believe that is something we need to focus on as an industry. Personally, I want to talk to more college graduates who want to enter management training programs for retailers and try to take on the challenges head on. I I agree with that. I I think, I think there's a difference between um, a bright mind and a, and a bright creative mind who, um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've seen in our careers, we've seen some fabulous merchants, some merchants that just could stand on the top of a mountain and, you know, describe a vision that then somebody else could go implement, you know, because the real visionaries aren't great implementers, you know, that's not really what they do. They usually spend way too much money and they take too much time, but <laughs> right. When you have a great merchant and, you know, or a Stanley Marcus, you know, or Fred Siegel or a, or Gordon Siegel or, you know, you know, Mickey Drexler, I mean, love them or hate them. It's not a personality issue. It's about what they were able to create from nothing that were, was relevant to the customer base, right? We can build beautiful properties. But if we don't have tenants in those properties that are, are fresh and relevant and compelling to the customer, then we've lost the game. So somehow we have to find and incubate these, these true merchants that, you know, some of them have tried it online. And, and I, I would say there are some of them that were probably really good, but for whatever reason, weren't able to make the online experience work. We still, we don't need to have them get frustrated and go off into a different business. You know, they need to to find a way to stay in retail and help this next generation of retail concepts um, really be um, special and wonderful because the technology will allow us to do it, but we need the creative minds behind it to make it happen. Well said. I will give you something thought provoking. I recently had Chris Walton on the podcast, the CEO of OmniTalk, and he was on the black box team at Target that helped build the store of the future. And he was in supply chain at the Gap. He was one of the top merchants at Target when he worked at Target. And when he came on, he said, the merchants of the future are the social media influencers and retailers need to get on board with that. So I'm still processing that, but what do you think of that? Sure. You know, and that, that, that is an interesting comment. I don't disagree with it, but I would add the piece that you still have to have the product. Sure. The social media influencer can if they're really good at what they do and there's some great ones out there and, and but they can influence you know how how to get a six pack ab or you know how to to cook for a week on Sundays or you know you know there's lots of different things that social media influencers can grab onto and add great value to but but we have to have product. We have to have things that people want and need in order to really 
give the social media influencer, you know, a, a path that comes through retail. Drop the mic moment. Well said. I think now is a great time to pivot. I'm conscious of time. I want to move to the next part of the show, the story. And you have a great story about how the container store ended up in Chelsea. I know you're really proud of it. Why don't you tell us about that story? I will. Um, Okay, I joined the company in uh, 2000. And at that time, we had about 22 stores, uh, mostly South uh, south and Southwest, uh, some Chicago, ma- major market oriented, but we had never, um, we hadn't, we didn't have the courage yet to, to move into Manhattan. And we felt like that was the next big step that we needed to make as, um, a, a national retailer, you know, to kind of put our name on the map, uh, to show that we really, um, that we were, we were a real company. We weren't just this, you know, little box company from Texas. And, um, so I had the good fortune to have lived in Manhattan for seven years and, and had a pretty good understanding of the neighborhoods and, and, uh, then, you know, tried to blend what our, um, our requirements were. Cause at that time we were 25,000 square foot stores, primarily freestanding, but also had some in open air shopping centers, didn't have anything in malls yet. Have some street locations, but you know we were really um, we were kind of independent from from what was around us. So um, we were approached um, with um, for uh, an opportunity in Chelsea, where the existing primary lease, which was on the first floor of the building, um, was in bankruptcy. And the, the space itself, it, this was in the ladies mile. So, you know, across from where Bed Bath & Beyond and TJ Maxx is and up the road is, a, is now a Trader Joe's and a Michael's. And so, so great historically preserved building, which, Chris, you know, in New York what that means. But a portion of the first floor was, was in the bankruptcy court to be sold as this lease. And what, but what we needed was that particular space plus adjacent space in the existing building so that we would have the right retail square footage. We essentially needed the whole block between 18th and 19th street. And then we needed uh, the basement for, uh, for our stock room. So you know how things work in the bankruptcy court. You go, you buy the lease. If you, if you, if you're successful buying the lease, you immediately start paying rent on the lease. Well, I had to tie the two together because I couldn't have the bankruptcy lease without the adjacent space and I couldn't have the adjacent space without the, the bankruptcy lease. And, uh, and God bless him. The, the, the man that owned the building uh, was in his eighties and he'd owned it forever and used to make towels for JC pennies in the basement after the war and just was a, 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 a dear uh, sweet property owner that actually understood the complexities that we were trying to deal with. And he took the risk on us. He took the risk that if we could put all the pieces together, that he would then um, allow us to uh, to combine the spaces like needed to be combined. Um, so fortunately, we we were able to get control of the lease out of bankruptcy. We were able to put the remaining spaces with it. Um, we knew that, of course, with bankruptcy, you have to start paying rent immediately. But we were in in the ladies' mile. I mean, we're in a building where you've got all the historically preserved activities that you have to work with with the city. 
And I mean, literally in this building, there is, I think, the prototype elevator that was probably shown off at the World's Fair, you know, in 1900 in in Chicago or something. It was just an amazing piece of equipment. Um, But um, we really marshaled the troops. Um, My development partner um, worked very closely with expediters in the city and with with uh, city officials, uh, we maintained and cleaned up the exterior of the building and then did what we needed to do in the building. So at the end of the day, let's see, we bought the lease out of the bankruptcy court in February and we opened the store that same July, which in itself is unheard of in Manhattan, regardless of whether or not you're in a new building or one from the 1800s. And, and, you know, some of the things that we, we just intuitively knew uh, at that time, back in 2000, there was very little what we would call click and collect or click and pick up business, right? It just didn't happen. But in New York, you could get a donut and a cup of coffee brought to you at two o'clock in the morning, right? So a New Yorker expected delivery. So at the same time that we were working through the issues of getting the store built, our IT department was working on a device that would allow a customer to come in and essentially point and click at a barcode and create a virtual shopping cart that would then be delivered to them, you know, that same afternoon or the next day. And so we were, we were experimenting, learning, but also really trying to connect with the customer that was there in New York that was so different from every other customer in all 22 of our other stores and, uh, and really created something that eventually uh, you know, became more of industry norm, industry standard on how how to how to handle um, high activity deliveries and how to handle click and collect business um, out of a retail store. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. And then ultimately, that really put us on the map with the investment community. It allowed us to form a partnership a couple of years later with um, our private equity owner Leonard Green, and and then ultimately led us to an IPO. Um, so. So it, I would say if there was one transaction, one store that you looked at in our um, in, in incredible um, you know, collection of, of wonderful retail locations and, and wonderful stores, that one in particular changed the tra- trajectory of our company um, forever. Wow, that is incredible. I want to unpack that a little bit. You said you were approached did you all already have it in your mind that you wanted to be in New York or did you want to be in New York after you were approached because of the interesting opportunity? No, we, we, uh, we had had the conversations. Um, we, we felt like it, we could handle a store. We really didn't know where we didn't know how it would all come together, but, but there was definitely a, a receptivity inside the company that, um, that if we found the right thing, we could move on it. Okay. So, so that, that helped. And then um, my knowledge of the city really helped uh, limit down where we felt like the, the best opportunities from a geographic standpoint would be. I, I got to tell you one thing, it, it, retailers, retailers have retail mentors, right? They, they, they meet people along the way that help shape the way they think and, and, and help, they help each other in making big decisions. We were very fortunate as a very young company in the um, um, 80s 
to have caught my eye of, of uh, Stanley Marcus. And Mr. Marcus would come and he would visit with our co-founders. And we have a series of letters from him over time uh, where he was um, speaking to a specific issue uh, for, for Kip and Garrett or, or, or talking about retail in general and, and, the, and the customer experience. And, and it's, it's, just, it's just a wonderful archive that we have in our company. But our co-founder that was uh, our CEO at the time that, that I was working on Manhattan, Kip Tyndall, he had a very close relationship with, with Gordon Siegel at Crate and Barrel. And so, you know, here I am in his office with all the pieces and parts of this incredible um, deal in, in Chelsea, right? So the first thing he does is pick up the phone and call Gordon Siegel and say, Oh my God, here's the opportunity that we have. And here's, you know, what we've put together. So what do you think we should do? And of course, I'm sitting on the other side, just cringing, thinking, Gordon, please don't take my space. Please don't take my space. <laughs> and God love him. He, he told, yep, he said, boy, I think that sounds like a great opportunity. You guys will do terrific there. You need to uh, go for it as quickly as you can. And, uh, and, and, and fortunately for me, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of people with really high integrity. Um, Gordon came to our, our grand opening party that, that we had there that, that summer. And uh, he walked through and he told Kip, he said, it's a really good thing you took this space because I was going to be right on it if you didn't take it. <laughs> oh my God. That's a story within a story. If people th- think that retailers don't talk, oh boy, do they ever. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. And what time period was this again? Uh, we opened the store in 2004. Who was the bankrupt retailer? Uh, today's man. Got it. And the adjacent space and the basement space, were they vacant? Um, you know, I, I, I've kind of blocked that out. I don't know. Um, the, the, the basement was vacant. But the, uh, the, the space next to us, I can't remember if there was like a, a lease on short term or whatever, but, but the owner was able to, to get that for us. Incredible. And do you think the lessons you've learned in that store being so early in 2004 and doing delivery, do you think that framed how you all do omni-channel and helped you through the pandemic? Probably. I, you know, as you're, as you're, as you're working through an issue and, um, you know, things change pretty significantly over 20 years. Right. Um, so sometimes it's hard to look back and think, where was that really rooted or, or how did that start? Or how did we get here? We already had an online business at that time. You know, we started that right before I joined the company. So, so we've been, um, online for, for more than 20 years, but, but there's certain, there absolutely is learning that's going on at all times in the company throughout the different function groups. Uh, we, we, uh, just tend our culture is is very collaborative, so you know things that that I glean from other retailers that I see or that our store operations see from other retailers. Then you know we can see we can see it. Does that make sense to incorporate in what we're doing? Or you know yes, social media and influencers are really taking off. So you know three years ago we started an influencer program that's been very successful for uh, certain aspects of our business and we watch other retailers and what they do with uh, virtual design and uh, you know and that and we're we actually accelerated virtual design as we went into the pandemic because we felt like that was a way to keep connected with our customers it's been very successful and so so i i, I think i think 
you know, it, 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 things are progressive in retail. You know, it's it's like if you look back to the very beginning, I, li- I like to tell the story about, you know, you've got your your wooden push cart and your animal skins and you're selling them for shekels, you know, around the countryside. And, you know, so <laughs> that was your first direct to customer experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so so retail just kind of repeats itself based on what the customer needs and then what the technology allows. So. So we're, we're doing things in a, in a different way, but we're doing the same types of things, getting the product to the customer the way they want it um, as efficiently as possible. Well, Val, that is a great story. The whole crate and barrel piece and the bankruptcy piece, truly awesome. And I know it's 16 years later, but I know you're proud of it. So congrats. And I know the store and I assume it's a very successful store today. Oh yeah. We're, we're very, very fortunate. And we, again, we've got, we've got a great landlord partner, uh, which, uh, is so necessary in New York, particularly it's necessary everywhere, but in New York, just stuff happens. You know? <laughs> and so you, you really want a good relationship with, with your property. Yeah. To land in a historic district in New York, the ladies mile to do it under duress to assemble spaces through a bankruptcy, a really unique story. Thank you for sharing. And I'm really excited that everyone gets to hear it. All right, we're running short on time. I want to take us to the last part of the show. Retail wisdom. I have two questions for you. Question one, what is your best piece of commercial real estate advice? Um, I'm not sure it just pertains to commercial real estate. Uh, We've talked about it a bit. Uh, relationships matter. Relationships matter. And uh, I talk a lot to younger people getting into the business. Uh, A relationship is not a text message. You know, it's truly getting to know the other party and what their needs are and how you can help solve those needs so that they can help you with your issues. So I, I think relationships are the key to this business and many, many others. I'm going to have to quote you on that relationships are not a text message. I'm going to have to steal that one. (laughs) Welcome to it. Last question. Fan favorite. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Now, see, here we'll test your New York knowledge. I loved Takashimaya on Fifth Avenue. And, you know, as a Japanese department store, they were in the city for 50 years. I think they, they finally closed in 2010. But, um, you know, retail, retail is an experience. It's not just products sitting on a shelf. And they did the most incredible job of displaying their product and bringing unlike uh, products together in a way that you would that it would relate to you. And, you know, it was, it was multi-level, uh, you know, it was a commitment to, 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 to visit the store, but I always walked out, if not with some amazing products, with always a great feeling about, about the experience. Wow. Know the store. Have to admit, I had never gone to the store, but phenomenal answer. No one has ever said that on the show. Big loss. Big loss for all of us. Well, Val, we are out of time, but I just want to say thank you. This was awesome. Uh, 
look forward to continually uh, connecting. Well, thank you, Chris. I, you know, I, I have so much respect for for you and Adam and uh, the culture of your company. Um, you know, I know you're working through these challenges um, in, in a really um, high integrity way, and I, I appreciate that very much. And uh, enjoy your friendship and uh, enjoy the things that we get to do together. So, thank you so much for including me today. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.